0: On your handout, you will see across the top that Zephaniah could be summarized in this one sentence. He's God of both judging and rejoicing. How can that be? So the main point uh, at the final judgment, our God will be both judging and rejoicing. Not rejoicing about judging people, but rejoicing for a different reason, as you will see. So summary of the book of Zephaniah, if you remember, we're looking at each of the minor prophets from this theme of a God theater, as if this is a storytelling place, and we're either telling the stories or even acting out the stories a theater, and so we're in our ninth out of 12 stories, theater presentations. So Zephaniah is our ninth minor prophet presentation in our God theater, and it starts off, as you'll see in a few minutes, with a prophet announcing God's severe judgment. As in all 12 minor prophets, judgment unto restoration will be found here also. God's intention is not to destroy everyone, but rather to transform people from each nation into his worshipers. So eventually, a subset of humanity, we could call it the remnant, the elect, his sheep, his people, a subset of humanity will do what is prophesied in Zephaniah 3.12 when they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So God is both powerful in judgment and powerful in redemption. God rejoices over us with singing. There's your clue to where we're going, chapter 317. Next on your handout, you'll see a time stamp of Zephaniah. You could summarize with uh, these five words, in the days of Josiah. So we'll spend a little bit of time today talking about the days of Josiah and the days of the kings around him. And that's why I wrote on the handout this list of kings. Uh, I think it's helpful, important for you to understand the book of Zephaniah to have this mini-history of the kings that surrounded Zephaniah. So note the surrounding years. I tried to give you a clue by the bold versus italicized print. So first, you have the line where it says, Good King Hezekiah, the years 716 to 687 BC. The country was moving toward God, and Zephaniah is related to King Hezekiah. Then jump down three lines to the other ones that's italicized. Good King Josiah, and that's the time in which we're studying today, the time in which Zephaniah prophesied, 640 to 609 BC. Again, the country could be described as moving toward God, at least for the bulk of his time at the very end. He didn't do as well, but in general, the country was moving toward God, and that's the time in which Zephaniah prophesied. So we're supposed to see a link between Zephaniah, and all the way back to King Hezekiah, King Josiah and King Hezekiah. Because the rest of them, on your handout, the rest of them in bold print are described as evil kings. Evil King Manasseh we'll talk about just a little bit. The country slips away from God. His son, King, evil King Ammon, the country slips away from God. Then good King Josiah. What happens after good King Josiah? Bummer. Evil king Jehoahaz comes and the country slips away from God. And again, the next three kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, the country slips away from God. What happens in 586 BC, by the way? The deportation to Babylon, the attack of Babylon, the um, uh, destruction of Jerusalem, and people being brought off into exile. So we're going to cover more of that. I just want to give you a quick overview for where we're going in that uh, timestamp section. The next section of your handout is our outline for today and next Sunday, Lord willing, that we'll work our way through the book of Zephaniah on this understanding. Let me give you the three main headings right now God's judgment against Jerusalem, chapter 1 into chapter 2. Chapter 2 into chapter 3, God's judgment against the nations and Jerusalem. And then, thirdly, the end of chapter 3, God's restoration for nations and for Jerusalem. So you see judgment unto restoration. It fits our theme of the Minor Prophets. We'll see then um, at the end of next week's class New Testament images and motifs from Zephaniah. For example, the impending judgment day of the Lord that we'll see is also mentioned in the New Testament. The warrior God coming with his armies to execute judgment is seen even in the last book of the Bible. A sacrifice prepared by the Lord that's so briefly mentioned in Zephaniah one seven to eight will also be seen in Revelation. A suffering and singing Savior, mentioned in chapter three seventeen, is mentioned in Hebrews uh, twelve two and alluded to in Psalm twenty two. And in the future all nations will be blessed to worship God, called to um, praise him as we see in Galatians and Philippians. So that's an introduction to your handout. One more thing I wanted to do before we get started is to look at the back of your handout. You'll see a map that is the ancient kingdoms around Israel and Judah. So that's my writing on there. I wanted to circle because when we get to chapter 2, you will see Assyria, Ammon, Moab, the list of the cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and and, uh, two more. And then I wanted you to see uh, Cush or Egypt down below. So this is a map of the days of the prophet Zephaniah. The only thing I wanted you to get from this is that there's a circle all the way around Judah and Israel, north, south, east, and west. I want you to see that visually because I'll be mentioning that when we go through chapter 2. All right, there's your intro. We'll start on the book of Zephaniah. So if you ask your friends who are Christians to make a list of their favorite books of the Bible, Zephaniah probably won't make their top five list. It's not averagely, um, an average list of most uh, Christians' favorite books. However, that's all the more important reason for us to study it, because it's part of God's inspired word, 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It means it's good for you. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you could say it another way. You're not complete without the book of Zephaniah. You had not fully equipped yourself for the walk of a Christian without this book. Or I could illustrate it another way. Just go with me on this, okay? Let's say your family, you married into a wealthy family something. Your family owns, your family clan, your extended family owns a collection of 66 bicycles and they're in a storage unit near a bike trail. 66 bikes. There's a couple that you like to ride most often when you go riding. One of those bikes you've never ridden before. You've literally never sat on it, never pedaled 10 feet. Let's say it's a nice day. Let's say it's time for a ride. You're selecting which bike you'd like to take out. How about trying out the bike that you never rode before? How about taking a class on Zephaniah? I should ask for a show of hands. Who have had a Bible study or a class on the book of Zephaniah? Anyone? Yeah, okay, good, that's good. Still, the illustration is um, we need to study all of God's word. So you start by asking, where did this bicycle come from anyway? And you start asking your uncles and your your cousins and your parents and your grandparents all across the clan. Anybody know where where did we get this bike anyway? And they all say, I don't know. (laughs) We know very little about where this bike came from. Yeah, that's Zephaniah. We know very little about the man Zephaniah, about his own personal story. This is despite having a very unusually long first verse. Now it's time for you to find the book of Zephaniah. I'm reading verse 1. Zephaniah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if you've been with me, or if you noticed as you study the minor prophets, there's usually a short list of those that they were sons of, son of, son of. I'll go back a little bit, a couple generations, to tell you who their father and grandfather is. But it's unusual that it goes back this far. It gives a genealogy, as it were. It spans four generations. Zephaniah, son of Cushy, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. So Zephaniah is the only prophet introduced with such a deep family tree listed. His ancestry is traced back four generations, back and back until it reaches a person named Hezekiah. Why such a long genealogy? To show two things. One is that Zephaniah had a connection with this good king Hezekiah. We're supposed to connect him in our thinking because there's a connection in his life. Also to show that our minor prophet Zephaniah as a fourth-generation member of a royal family, had special access to the royal court, a vantage point from which he could observe what was happening in the royal court, the leaders of Judah, take note of their actions, their attitudes, their sins, and prophesy against those sins. So we understand how he was able to speak about the leaders of Judah because he could see what they were doing. All right? So we have his timestamp. The man Zephaniah lived and ministered during the reign of good king who? Josiah, the class said. Yes, good king Josiah. Ruled from 640 to 609 BC. King Josiah was good because if you know anything about King Josiah, what he's famous for, the famous story of King Josiah is that it was during his reign that the word of God was found in the temple. The temple was in such disarray that they lost the word of God. So they found it again. So that's very bad, and yet very good, that they found it. And he, I'll say more about that in a moment. I just want to introduce you to the concept of where we're going. So, here in verse 1, interestingly, um, we have the list of good king Josiah and his father. So, Good King Josiah was good because he respected the word of God when it was found and desired to bring the country in the direction of obedience and holy living. However, the bad part is when King Josiah started out, he had a country that was in a spiritually dangerous condition. The temple was in disarray and the word of God was lost. So King Josiah's father is listed here in verse 1. See that? A man named Ammon. A-M-O-N. Both Ammon and Ammon's father led the people astray from God and from godly living, if you look at my handout, right? For example, let me just back this up with a couple Bible verses if you want to jot them down next to the names. I'm looking at Manasseh. Now, this would be King Josiah's grandfather. What did he do that was so evil? He installed pagan altars inside the Lord's holy temple. I'll prove this. Uh, 2 Kings 21, 1 through 7. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, for he rebuilt the high places. High places was the code word for worshiping idols. That Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed... And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. The moon and stars, right? He's worshipping the moon and stars. Not good. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and necromancers, which is speaking to the dead. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of the Lord. Which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. That whole quote was Second Kings twenty-one one through seven, just demonstrating how Manasseh is bad. That was King Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. Now let's talk about King Josiah's father, King Ammon. King Ammon followed the same evil footsteps as his father, Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, 19-22. Second Kings 21, 19-22. Let me read. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshublameth, his, the daughter of Haruz of Joppa. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. End quote. 2 Kings twenty one, nineteen to 22 Ammon is bad. Manasseh is bad. Ammon is bad. Why am I telling you all this? Not to put you to sleep, to help you to see the interesting case that Josiah comes into. His grandfather's bad, his father's bad. So we get to King Josiah coming to the throne as king, and you would think he's already pointed in what direction? Class says evil, right? The evil direction of his father and grandfather. And Add to that the fact that when Josiah became king, he was only a young boy. So what's so surprising and what's so refreshing about King Josiah is that from the very beginning, he pursued a different path than his father and grandfather, 2nd Chronicles 34 5 to 7 2nd Chronicles 34 5 to 7 he Josiah burned the bones of the wicked priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem cleansed is a really good word for kings to be doing cleanse the evil right purging and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and all their ruins around, he broke down the pagan altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 34, 5-7. King Josiah coming in, cleaning house. Later, if you fast forward 18 years later in King Josiah's reign, he refurbished the temple of the Lord. He starts to fix up stuff. It's kind of run down around here. Let's fix up the temple, right? And it was during that restoration work of the building itself that a priest found the Bible that had been lost and forgotten in the temple. So we read this, Second Kings 22, 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it, Second Kings 22, 8. There's a whole lot more to that. I welcome you to read 2 Kings 22. Perhaps you remember the story. They go on and read it to King Josiah. He tears his robes. The whole country goes into repentance. So that book, the book of the law that they found, must have included Deuteronomy because if you study King Josiah's life and the Reformation changes that he made, they went along the lines of Deuteronomy. Doesn't it demonstrate to us, though, my whole point is this, how bad things were when King Josiah came to the throne. At that moment, when young King Josiah becomes king, the important words of God were so little known that they needed to be rediscovered. So then let's go after King Josiah, right? Reformation happens. We, we like to, to, to uh, celebrate the, the uh, reformation of the 1500s and 1600s in Europe. And rightly so, it's impacted all of our lives. But this was a reformation back in the Old Testament, right? After the time of reformation, reclaiming God, restoring the temple, reading the word of God, people in repentance, what happened next? After King Josiah's many reforms and improvements, they were undone by the next king. The country of Judah once again spiraled downward into sin. And you know that story because it leads, as I just gave you the brief um, history on your handout there, the list of kings, It leads to the 587 B.C. or 586 B.C. attack of Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and take prisoners of war. So the warnings of our book Zephaniah were not heeded or followed. That's the haunting thing. All right, let's get into the actual text here. So outline of Zephaniah, we're on on chapter 1. Verse 2. We've covered verse 1, that's kind of all the intro stuff. Ready to get into the content now. God's judgment against Jerusalem. Chapter 1, 2 to 2, 3, and a, a next heading, a subheading, judge, judging everyone on the face of the earth. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So let's read verses 2 and 3. I will, this is God speaking. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow. Okay, soak that in. I will utterly. Sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Whoa! Are you ready for this this morning? You had your coffee? <laughs> I will sweep away everything. You name me a place in Scripture that has a more vast and severe judgment listed. This is like wake you up and this is severe judgment. Right? A stark message of judgment begins the book of Zephaniah. Fierce words. Let me ask you this. Do these words still have relevance to us today? How does it all end? Fast forward. It's true. God will sweep away everything on earth. There's a final fiery judgment. He will save his people. And we go to heaven. And the rest of it, he judges and burns up right? In a time between Zephaniah and today, man has not changed, and God has not changed. So I don't know if you came today for a wake-up call, but Zephaniah, if you're studying Zephaniah, this is a severe wake-up call to us. It's it's one of those fiery judgment kind of sermon uh, teaching lessons in in this book. So Zephaniah's words of condemnation, And also, thankfully, his words of hope are relevant to us today. What Zephaniah was doing, from his vantage point, is he was observing the problems of society. And then he was fast-forwarding those problems, saying, where does this lead? Where does that go? And he looked ahead and foresaw the inevitable consequences of societal breakdown, that eventually people faith God. He recognized that these evil deeds he was seeing cry out to God for justice. He knew that the time was fast approaching when God would, in fact, take actions of justice towards the people of Judah with a long history of sin. We just studied that on our handout. Yet what's fascinating about Zephaniah is that the events of God's judgment are not some unique outbursts of God's wrath. Rather, these coming Babylonians. He never mentions the Babylonians, but we know from the the, uh, world history of those times that that's eventually what was happening. That's what he's pointing to. Zephaniah doesn't actually mention the Babylonians, as Jeremiah does. But we know that's coming, right? The coming Babylonians were a foreshadowing of a much greater catastrophe yet to come. We can call it the final judgment. This is all mini pictures meant to show us what will happen at the end of the world. Zephaniah looked still further ahead and saw that final day when every human being will have to give account to his or her maker. That's what he means when he says in verse 3, See, now read it differently. Read verse 3 again with me, but this time think about the final judgment. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah is communicating to us down through the years to give us the message from God to absorb to our own minds as we stand in world history yet looking ahead to the final judgment that he's mentioning here. There will be a global accounting to God of every evil word, every evil action, every single person, a grand and thorough reckoning in which true justice for all sins will finally be rendered. Now what does that do to you? On the one hand, it's kind of fearful. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, finally things will be set right. And we don't have fear because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Give this um, how Jesus echoed Zephaniah's message. Matthew 12:36 to 37. Jesus said, "I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned." Matthew 12:36 to 37. The apostle Paul echoed Zephaniah's words. Romans 2: five to 10. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 2, 5 to 10. Now, I read those verses, but don't start down the train of thinking that therefore we have a works righteousness. I mean, it's all by grace. God saves us by grace. Jesus' death cleanses us of our sins. His resurrection purchases safety for us and gives us his righteous record. You understand the gospel. I'm just showing you the similarity between God's message of ultimately everyone will give account and the message of Jesus and the message of Paul. It's the message of all God's Old Testament prophets. It's the message of his son. It's the message of the New Testament apostles. So there's an impulse in us that matches with this. This is the both Old Testament, New Testament, and the message of Jesus. This is God's message to humanity. And you understand this. We understand this instinctively. And let me demonstrate that. There's an impulse in every human being to see tragic things happening nearby, around the world, to see things happening in our day or read about things that happened in history across the world. And when evil happens and it goes unpunished, there's this rising sense of outcry. We develop a personal outrage against things and say there ought to be a proper reckoning, right? We all feel that. Various people hold various opinions about what it is that constitutes evil, which things exactly ignite my personal outrage. But deeper than those personal definitions and the ways in which you would characterize things, deeper than that, what's true about all of us is there are certain things that are deplorable. Right? We all say that. Unbelievers say that. Humanity is designed to see the world as these things good, These things bad. These things deplorable. These things applaudable. We get that. We all are wired that way because we're made in the image of God. That's how God sees things. He has a heaven and a hell. He has things that he applauds. Things that he condemns. And so ordinarily, for humanity, these things are on the list of the deplorable. Murder. Hurting weak and helpless people, hurting children, elderly, etc. Most people across mankind and down through the generations agree that when such serious evils have been committed, the perpetrators ought to be found and punished for it. Brought to justice. Is that not something you've heard often in your life? Listen carefully this week in the news. Brought to justice, will you know, jump out at you now that we've talked about this. Bring the criminal to justice is the cry. It's the cry from every heart. We even have created international courts in order to judge war crimes and other atrocities that have happened decades ago, still working on it. Authorities in one country seeking to have authority over the officials of another country, saying, we countries agree that you country didn't do right. It shows that on a deeper level, a pervasive international level, persons in most countries agree that there will be a day when justice will be kept. Justice will be served, wrongs will be made right, the truly evil and wicked will finally receive the punishments due for the crimes that they've committed. The only remaining question then is, whose court? Who gets to decide? What's the definition of crime or right and wrong? So we all understand that these are things that God speaks to. So the prophet Zephaniah is not merely writing to condemn hearers of his day of their particular sins committed by them during their lifespan on earth. He actually has an eternal message. Zephaniah is the word of God. God has a message for all of humanity. It's much larger than just the history that we're covering on our handout. Zephaniah is using his hearers, and urging them to flee from the future wrath of God and to find a safe refuge from the storm of God's coming anger while there's still time to do so. You could liken Zephaniah's message here in verses 2 and 3 to a tornado warning siren, a tornado siren, a stark message of danger, of impending death, right? This is the tornado. What is the message if you put it into words? What's the community saying to you when you hear the tornado siren? Danger, impending possibility of your death, not designed to bring terror to you, but rather, on the contrary, to save your life by urging you to take certain actions. You see how that's a similarity to Zephaniah's message? And second, way that Zephaniah's book imitates or has the same kind of messages of a tornado siren is that it's intended to have an impact on the audience, but also on others. Not just you, but your neighbors, right? It's intended for not just his audience initially, but all who will hear, all who will read. All who can hear this tornado siren are under danger of the possible tornado, So Zephaniah's tornado warning about the oncoming and imminent destructive storm of God's fierce anger against human sin and evil is still in effect today. Listen for it. Listen. You hear that? (laughs) You're studying the book of Zephaniah, which means you're coming under the hearing of the tornado siren. It's meant for you, not to terrify you, but to motivate you to take certain actions so that you're not in danger. Run to Christ. Right? That's the message. Um, We are to heed the message, seek the shelter for ourselves while the opportunity still exists because the storm is coming. The day of the Lord is still a reality with which we must reckon now through our own response, through our own preparation. Zephaniah jumps off the page and says to us, are you hearing? Are you ready? Or else we must reckon unprepared when that storm actually arrives, the tornado arrives, or... The wrath of God and the storm of that arise. So Zephaniah's message should be heard by us as a spiritual tornado warning, and he makes himself uh, he himself makes it explicit explicitly clear that his words have a wider relevance than just his original ancient audience, well outside of his own local context. Um, His central message of judgment here in chapter one is focused, yes, on the people of the city of Jerusalem and the country of Judah, but. These verses two and three are much more widely framed, you'd have to admit. Let me read them once more. You really think this is limited to just the ancient Jerusalem and Judah? I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the mankind. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Are you really warranted to conclude that it's only referring to Jerusalem and ancient Judah? You see what I mean? Zephaniah opens his book saying, I have a message for every human, future generations. So I like to think that these minor prophets are becoming friends of ours. and This is my friend Zephaniah. Everybody, Zephaniah, the class, class, this is Zephaniah. He's giving us a gift. He's helping us, right? We have confirmed this in God's word, not just the Old Testament, with the image of this tornado warning, but also in the New Testament. If it's true down through the ages, then it will be repeated in the New Testament, right? Do we have that? The image of global tornado or global fire, yes. Second Peter 3, 10-12. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 2 Peter three ten to 12 So what we have as the warning of tornado or storm coming is repeated in the New Testament, 2 Peter three ten to 12 using the image of a, a, a fire that will consume and burn up the entire earth. So yes, the coming judgment of God, the final judgment of God. Whether pictured as a tornado or pictured as a global fire, so cataclysmic and so world-transforming that it includes not only humanity, all humanity, but as verses 2 and 3 say, everything. In fact, verse 3 goes out of its way to list even animals, birds of the sky, fish of the sea. By the way, as you look at verse 3 and it lists out animals, birds of the sky, Fish of the sea. You Bible-reading people, you... Does that sound familiar to you? Where do you find in the Bible a list of, I don't know, um, animals, birds of the air, fish of the sea? Hmm. How about this? Genesis one twenty six. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, Zephaniah's words here are deliberate echo of the written record of God's original activity to create the whole world and all its creatures in the first place. He's uncreating. The creator is uncreating in his wrath. Now, if that doesn't send a shiver down your spine, you're not listening. Genesis 9:2 again we get, God says to Noah and his sons, the relationship that humans would have with created animals and birds and fish, that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. In other words, what you do, Noah, all the animals and birds and fish will follow. They're going to suffer for what you do. You get right with God and they'll be all right. You don't get right with God and they'll be burned up with you. You see that? The lesson for us to draw from the the launch of Zephaniah, the beginning of Zephaniah, this worldwide judgment, is that the judgment of God will be so severe that the creation itself will be reconfigured. Undone. The order that God set in place that we've known our whole lives, we've known nothing different, we've never seen or known anything different than the order in which the creation is, we're living in it which God has kept in place from the beginning by the word of his power, in judgment will be upended. It should remind us of the actions of God during the days of Noah. Please take that literally. There was a worldwide flood. Don't you think that's a little bit of upending what God himself created? When normally the water was designed to keep within the boundaries of the oceans, never to cover the whole land, During the judgment of God in Noah's time, water was allowed to overflow its banks, become disorderly itself, and cover the entire face of the earth under God's specific direction. What's going on there? God is sending a message to humanity saying, either with water or with fire or with whatever I decide, I'm going to destroy all who will not come to me through Christ And have their sins cleansed. I'm this serious about sin. And and we hear here in verse 2 of Zephaniah God's action to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It could be locusts, Book of Joel. It could be water. It could be fire, ants, a whole group of tigers. I don't know. God has everything under his control. And once again, toward the end of chapter 1 of Zephaniah, God will again expand beyond just simply the country of Judah to show the worldwide scene of destruction that includes all the inhabitants of the earth. So it describes a time when the Lord will make a complete end of human existence because of the universal effects of sin. If only there was hope. God, please give us mercy. Please give us hope somewhere in there. Otherwise, it's just complete disaster. Scene over. The end. The end. Is that really how it's supposed to end? No, that's just a wake-up call, verses 2 and 3. We've got a whole rest of the book to go. Let's move forward. Verses 4 through 6. What does God say next? I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs of the host, to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, what is happening? Why was the Lord judging Jerusalem? Well, two categories, spiritual sins and societal sins. Idolatry is mentioned, of course, in three forms. It's mentioned all the prophets, right? Number one, worship of the false god Baal, verse four. Number two, worship of the stars of the sky, verse five. And number three, worship of the false god Milcom, which is another name for Molech verse 5. It seems to show that downward spiral because Baal worship had been a struggle for Jerusalem since the days of Joshua and the initial conquering of this very territory. You know, the, the conquering of Canaan. Worshipping stars in the sky seems to have been a new one for Judah introduced perhaps by King Manasseh sort of more recently. And worship of the false god Milcom or Molech involved sacrificing children. Oh, lovely. Verse 5, some thought that they could combine the worship of the Lord with other worship. I got my left foot in worshiping God in the temple, and I got my right foot worshiping whatever some other junk, right? It doesn't work. Meanwhile, verse 6, others had abandoned even the presence of serving the Lord, as we see from the quotes in verse 6. Turn back from following the Lord. Do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Then verse 8, beyond where I read, let me read verses 7 and 8. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, consecrated his guests. Verse 8, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So that phrase, foreign attire, probably references what the priests or religious leaders of false-worshipping false gods would wear. All kinds of weird, crazy stuff, right? So the foreign attire, foreign clothing, special clothing worn by priests of other religions. Then in verse 9, the practice of leaping over the threshold is mentioned. Probably another pagan superstition. You see it in the book of Judges where the god Dagon falls over and he's cracked across the threshold, those sorts of things. Probably connected to the ancient belief that demons gathered around doorways. And so the threshold on the floor or the doorframe around the door and all those things had special significance because either the demon is let in or not let in around the doorway. But they're spiritual sins. Uh, there are other sins. Verse 9, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Have, have you encountered violence recently in your country? Right? These are issues. Humanity starts to be violent against one another when they're not following God. Fraud. Well, it's just scams, right? Deep truths. How we worship has an impact on our lives. What are our fellow citizens worshiping? And why are there so many scams? Why is there so much violence? Because they're not worshiping. They had gathered power and influence by filling their houses on the houses of their masters with ill-gotten gains through scams. Next section, Judging Jerusalem, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. On that day declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. So the surrounding countryside would be judged by God too, not just the big city center, but every little village and town, rural areas too, God is over that. Verse 11, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Soon they should weep and wail. They're rather complacent now, but soon they should weep and wail. Their business partners in trading all will be cut off, so their supply of silver would be cut off as a result. And that's when money-worshiping people start to wail, when you cut off their money. Verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I'll punish the men who are complacent. There it is. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Oh, are you ever wrong. Oh, the Lord. There's no Lord. There's no final judgment. No one ever gives an account for anything. The Lord doesn't do anything. There's no God. Right? That's what they're saying. Complacency, verse 12. Does that sound familiar? Verse 12, the the people of Jerusalem are being judged because of being complacent, which means satisfied that they know how things stand spiritually. Pull back the curtain of the spiritual realm, they've got it all figured out. There's nothing. It's just what we got. There is no giving an account, they'll tell you. The little theologians, they'll tell you. They don't reckon with the existence of the Lord God of the heavens. They don't reckon with that. They don't seriously reckon wrestle with that truth. They just sweep it all away and assume or hope that they're correct. Dear friend, what if you're wrong? Dear friend, have you ever read Zephaniah and taken it seriously? As a result, they're concluding the Lord will not take action for good or for ill. He's not going to bless us and he's not going to condemn us. We just can't count on him. We're on our own. Lies, lies, lies. They assume God is a non-factor, so they live their whole lives as if God doesn't matter. They assume they will never have to answer to God, and they're wrong. God's about to come against them like a terrible storm. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Judging Jerusalem, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. We move on to... Chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Got five minutes left. We're doing good. The day of the Lord judging all mankind. Listen to it. Chapter 1. I know I skipped some verses. I'm doing that on purpose. This is an overview. You get the idea. So, okay, verse 14. Listen to this. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a sudden, a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. He lists it out. They've sinned against him, against the Lord. So his message on behalf of the judge of all the earth is not a message restricted to Judah at all. You see that again? The scene is one of worldwide destruction that includes every inhabitant of the earth again describing a time in which the Lord will make a complete end of all of human existence because of a unif- universal effects of sin, the mini-judgment that God did in Judah in history was only a tiny foreshadowing of God's coming judgment on all flesh. That's what's in view with the Bible's oft-repeated phrase, the day of the Lord. Oh, do we need to understand this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God comes in judgment, but it's also when he comes in salvation. That's what's not understood about the Bible's repeated phrase, day of the Lord. That's what our whole <laughs> premise is about all the 12 minor prophets. The whole idea, if I could summarize the 12 minor prophets in three words, judgment unto restoration. I've been trying to drill that into us. The day of the Lord is judgment unto restoration. As a result, what Zephaniah has to say about his own day speaks directly to us as a part of the wider humanity that still exists under the wrath of God for our sins. Verse 14, the mighty man, that's what they trusted in. Military-grade shelters, verses 16, fortified cities, lofty battlements. Or verse 18, silver and gold are all empty when they find themselves facing the reality of the arrival of the Lord God as a militarized warrior from heaven. You got F 16s, you got F 18s, or whatever they have in the generation beyond F 18s. You got a whole fleet of them. You know what? Triple it, quadruple it, make a hundred times more. What in the world are you going to do when the Lord God of heaven comes? What are we trusting in? Money, military strength of man, or the best, most fortified thing? It's 70 feet down below the earth and it's got concrete and steel all around. Yeah, tell me all about it. Show me the video. What are you going to do when the Lord God comes and instantly puts it in smithereens? What are we trusting in? It's the same issue today. According to verse 15, it would be a day of distress and anguish for everyone, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. How do you lessen that? Some of you may realize the day of wrath hymn in the old Latin requiem mass called, in, in Latin, dis irae, day of wrath, is built on these verses. One of the most famous ancient hymns. So verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, then, is a call to repent. What are you going to do? Turn to God. Repent. Look at it. Chapter 2, 1. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Verse 2. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord... Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Yeah, hidden. Hidden in Christ's righteousness, right? The only safe place. The Hebrew word translated gather, In chapter 2, 1 specifically refers to gathering stubble to make a fire. Similarly, in in verse 2, the word chaff refers to that worthless byproduct of the process of separating seeds from chaff. The nation will be gathered and burned up in the face of an oncoming wildfire. Just as the Lord had driven out the Canaanites from that land originally, the previous inhabitants of that very land in Joshua's day So now the Lord seems to be driving out the present inhabitants of the land because their sins were no different than the Canaanites. God looks from heaven and says, My people look exactly the same as all the pagans. There's still hope, though, for those who would heed the words of the prophet of God and seek him on that terrible day. What they need is to run into the tornado shelter, the only one that God has created, the only one that can sustain the hit. Does such a place exist? Praise God it does. Chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. is the only place where safety exists from the wrath of God. The tornado shelter is the Lord himself. Refuge from wrath is found only in the Son of God. The same God who judges sin also saves and blesses those who seek him humbly in repentance and faith. After King Josiah's untimely death, Battle the Egyptians at Megiddo in six oh nine BC, the people of Judah returned to their previous idolatrous practices with disastrous results. The Babylonian attack of five eighty-six. Does this apply to modern people? Aren't there the same sins? Let me see. Idolatry. Do we have anybody worshipping anything other than God? Yeah. Hmm. Selfishness. Do we have any selfish neighbors? Any selfish coworkers? You ever seen a selfish motorist on the road? All right. People enjoying their own pleasures. Do we have any of that going on? Too often, security and significance tied up with money, tied up with career success, being part of the popular crowd, having certain significant relationship with a certain person. Did you know that I know so-and-so? And And name-dropping. False gods demand that we put God, church, and family behind our careers and our pleasures. And the emptiness we feel in our lives drives us to desire distraction. So, therefore, comes in sexual temptation, literal, virtual forms, all over the place. Is that not a booming industry? And we seek satisfaction, safety, pleasure, all to solve our boredom. And modern people have given up trying to serve the God of Scripture. Some Christians seem convinced they can hold on to idols on one hand and hold on to God on the other hand, and God won't have it. Give up all the idols, serve God and him alone. Um, So we may casually joke about our sin in the same way we joke about a few pounds being overweight or that we drive a little too fast, but our God is serious about our sins. I hope you take that away from today as I close. Our God is fiercely jealous and will not share his love with another, and he insists on our holiness which is only possible through repentance and faith and his holiness being given to us as a gift. It's not a matter of the God of the Old Testament being all on fire and upset and the God of the New Testament being more gentle and kind. Please, please do not conclude that. Listen to Ephesians 5.5. 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 5:5 5, 5 to six. There's a day coming when the wrath of God will be displayed, and the only ones who are safe, those who are by grace covered, their sins are washed away, and they have the righteous robe of Christ surrounding them. That's the only place of hope for us and for any humans. Let's pray. Father, as we study the book of Zephaniah as a start today and as a continuation,